Hello and welcome to History Happened Everywhere. The Verdict. This is our after-show podcast where we look back at the previous episode, Greenland. So if you haven't listened to that, go back, check it out, uh, and then come back. Otherwise, there will be spoilers ahead. Is your underwear clean? Oh, when I last smelled it. (laughs) Which means either, yes, it's clean as he smells it regularly, or... He waits until he can smell it before he cleans it. (laughs) Lovely. So, hello, welcome to History Happened Everywhere. I'm here with Ryan Weir, the co-host with the most. Hello. And, of course, the man wielding the gavel, the bewigged Paul Dursley. Hello. So, Paul, I understand that you've got a week off coming up. Yes, I do. Are you excited for it? No. It's good to take time off. It is. It, it is um, it'll be. It'll be okay when it's there, but it's always hectic in the run-up. We were wondering if you wanted to take off two weeks, we could look at finding, you know, like a, a substitute for you, like a substitute. Like a locum. Like a locum, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, so we had a little look online to see if there was another Paul Dursley that we could find. And it turns out that you're pretty much the only Paul Dursley. Well, I do have a second cousin called Paul. Is it? Wait, is he a Dursley as well? Yes. <gasps> so there are two Paul Dursley. He's a challenger. Yes, so we, we were in the same year at school. You had two Paul Dursleys <laughs> in the same class. And, then he, and yet we can't find a second Paul Dursley in the world. I didn't say that. I said, yeah. So what we did discover, though, and the internet gave us this information, is that your middle name is Kyle. How would the internet give you that? <laughs> oh, my friend. Is that true? You'll have to ask my mother, but how did you find Page one of Google. <laughs> <laughs> you must run. You're, 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 quite, you're quite middle class, so you must have at least two middle names. No, I just have the one. Uh, Edward. I think Pete has two. No, mine is James. James. Hmm. Maybe that's we should go to PJ and Ryan and Judge Kyle. That is awesome. Yeah, right, we're I looking can, up. Yes. No, we're looking up your rapper name. It's happening. We're gonna. <laughs> we're gonna do it. Uh, right. Okay. There is a name generator here for rapper names. Right. You have to fill in a few things. So, uh, what is your favourite TV character, Paul? I should. I should go with the uh, journalist James Burke. Ooh. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Something really pleasant. A snoring. It's kind of satisfying. I could see it that. It's not satisfying. That is satisfying. <laughs> yeah. uh, what is an <laughs> adjective to describe you? Now, we did this last week. We did. And I think we discovered. I think the answer is fat. Uh, erudite, I think, was what we said, wasn't it? Oh, God. You keep on so I'm going to put erudite word. in. Uh, the name of your favourite childhood pet? Tiddles. All right. That's it. That's all we need to do. Right. So, rapper names. Hit the button. And the rapper names are Totes Erudite. Totes erudite, I like that. De real Paul. De real Paul. Dursley, but with the S, is like an American dollar sign. Oh, that's a good one. Well, you might as well make the L a pound sign then. Yeah, very good. (laughs) I like that. And the E a euro sign. (laughs) Can we do your name entirely in currency? (laughs) Is the Y a yen? Yes. (laughs) What's a D? A dong. And, and the R will be rupee, of course. There's some more here. Kulo Dursley. Uh, oh, come on. Paulacious D. That's Paulacious D. <laughs> Erudite man. Erudite. 
<laughs> some, I'm not sure this uh, website is trying that hard in <laughs> some instances. I think I can work out the algorithm that it's using. Erudite face Paul. <laughs> Where does face come from? Uh, uh, I don't know. Bling a ding tiddles. <laughs> I think you're much more interested in this than I am. What's, what was your I choice? Like personally, erudite face. Paul. That's a personal favourite of mine. It's one word, erudite face. Oh, <laughs> according course, to that makes all the difference. <laughs> Any of those particularly stand out for you, Paul? Bling tiddles or whatever. <laughs> Blinking tiddles. Blinking tiddles. <laughs> Oh, anyway, dear. right, we should... Do you uh, realise you're just laughing at random words? <laughs> yeah, I know. Random words are hilarious. <laughs> bling and ding tiddles. <laughs> All right, enough. Enough shenanigans. We need to get on with the job at hand, which is to look back over the last episode and assess it. But we could use a reminder. Ryan, are you ready for your one-minute summary? I, Peter, am always ready. Then Go. Greenland straddles the Arctic Circle and is therefore very cold. 80% of the landmass is covered in thick ice in some places as deep as 10 Eiffel Towers deep. Greenland is officially within the Kingdom of Denmark, but the Americans played a caretaker role over the country during the Second World War. In this time, they used the opportunity to build a few remote weather stations. This kickstarted a special relationship between the countries which culminated in a shared agreement for the USA to build an airbase in a remote Greenlandic town called Thule. The airbase was built in secret and stayed relatively under the radar until 1968 when a US Air Force B-52 bomber carrying four thermonuclear bombs crashed seven miles outside of the Thule airbase, spreading radiation over three square miles. As per their agreement, the US and Danish governments confirmed that no nukes have ever been flown or stored over Greenland and go ahead and just clear up the wreckage. Twenty years later, however, a curious cat called Paul Brink discovers through a robust investigation that the governments lied about the use of nukes in and over Greenland. In an award-winning book, he revealed the lies and culpability of the two major governments, resulting in compensation for the many Thule workers who were seriously ill due to radiation poisoning. Sadly, Paul Brink died unexpectedly just four years after the publication of his book. Last week's episode done, summarised nicely, nice one son, now we're over to a young Dursley who's gonna tell you what he thought of me, he'll take you apart without any care, he's the lovely Paul Dursley, the lovely Paul Dursley. Excellent summary sir, well done, good work, and uh... You say sadly he died. There is that element of it, but I couldn't help but feel at least he got to the point where he had published his book, achieved his goal. It would have been much worse if he'd have passed without ever having revealed that the big thing. Yeah, he got to see the effects of his investigation come to its fruition. Right? Yeah. So I think it's. Uh, I mean, it's obviously sad that he passed away, but as timings go, at least he had that that benefit of that knowledge. That's true. Paul, what did you think yeah. of the episode? It was all right. Okay. Good. What did you enjoy? What didn't you enjoy? Did you learn anything new? I did know about Chrome Dome and, and sort of the nuclear bombs falling on Spain um, as a as a part as a part of it. Palameros. Yes, that's 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 the one. I was surprised by how many times they accidentally dropped their nuclear bombs. I sort of had it was the sort of thing I thought I would have remembered, but I had no recollection of any of these things going on at the time. 
I mean, you weren't around then, though, right? This was during the 60s. It, it would be early mm, 60s, tr- yes. Yeah, true. But I was thinking even into the 80s when the Denmark stuff was going on and everyone was listening to Recepten. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, e- e- even then, I don't really remember anyone Well, you'd think saying, this would be much bigger news, right? Well, I thought so, too. In general, it's like big accidents. In my mind, it was all fine and the Cold War ended. Not... They kept dropping <laughs> nuclear waste everywhere, which is kind well, of what I got out of last week. Well, we didn't hear about it because it was the Americans. If the Russians had done it and it would be found out, of course, it would be headline news, as yes, as, as you did as you did in your little skit, the Russian American, the Doctor Strange Love takeoff. <laughs> <Right>, yes. <laughs> Yes, well, that, that 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 film contains one of my favourite lines in all of films. You can probably guess which one it is. No, go and tell us. Gentlemen, please don't fight in here. This is the war room. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, just in in all, though, like, it was a shocking story, right? Can you imagine being Paul Branken discovering it for the yeah, first time? I, I think shocking is the right word, but also unsurprising is also another word. But, I mean, I think we just place so much faith in our governments to not lie to us in such a brazen way. Oh, I'm not sure. I, I expect them to lie to us in a very brazen way. I've... Yeah, all, all governments all governments lie. A definition of what is a lie. Generally, I, th- I think the richer the government, the more way out the things they have to lie about, like the idea of digging 2,000 miles worth of tunnels through, mm. through a glacier. Moving ice. <laughs> oh, and, and then, yeah, just someone needs to say, actually, gla- ice flows. So uh, it, it's amazing that it wasn't stopped so much earlier. It, it, absolutely right. Yeah. You, you were referencing Project Iceworm there, uh, which yes. was the Americans' attempt to dig under the entirety of Greenland. Unless, unless it was an April Fool's joke. It could be an April Fool's joke. I don't know. Well, it's possible because they also had a couple of other projects about building bases under the ice. Uh, 20 feet under the ice was sort of like the uh, as, as deep as they went. There was Project Tuto, uh, which was a camp about uh, 200 miles north of Thule. And then there was Fist Clench, which is another great name. So is that a place without any toilets? <laughs> 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 Fist clench. How about that? So what were they? Those These were underground bases? These or? are underground bases that were built. Uh, yeah, they used Swiss mining technology. Well, not mining, but like um, snow digging technology. And they brought these over to Greenland and uh, they were digging trenches that were huge. They had messes down there and canteens, as we spoke about shops and all sorts. Fist clench was one of the first. And I understand that Camp Century, which is where Project Iceworm was located, will in the year 2100, if temperatures continue to stay at the same the same temperature mm-hmm. as they are today, all of the ice will melt around it. And the, the, the depth of how big the Americans had actually dug these, these trenches out will, will show. And reveal, the guys in there like, oh, hi. <laughs> well, and will reveal the nuclear reactors that they had what? in the base. In nuclear reactors that they have in the base uh, and plus other sort of biological and other chemical waste that was yeah, just can left I, Can I just, just, just stop you there? You've just reminded me. What are the things that fly in the sky that you go in as a passenger called? Airplane. No. An aeroplane? Yes. <laughs> really? Okay. What's an airplane then? The American spelling of it, or the American way to say aeroplane. Oh, okay. 
So what's a seaplane? A CO plane? My favorite. <laughs> no, a seaplane is a seaplane. A seaplane is my favorite form of transport, by the way. Not that I've ever been in one, but I want yeah, one. Yeah, no, I know. I, I, I'm with you on that. Yeah. I. It's the best. There is no other vehicle that can get you anywhere on the planet. And you sort of think you're semi-safe as well. If it sort of falls out of the sky, it's got right. pontoons in it. <laughs> most, <laughs> most of the planet is made of water. I think in order to own a, a seaplane, you have to be... A, archaeologist adventurer type don't you right yeah and have a fight on like the the big wheel things yeah with a saber with a saber yeah <laughs> anyway, I've, I've never been on a seaplane but i've been to vancouver <laughs> <laughs> i thought it was gonna stop there like so, so. <laughs> <laughs> but by the harbor there are hundreds of private and charter and even commercial seaplanes that generally fly to Vancouver Island or some of the internal lakes. Yeah, it makes so sense. You, you sort of see, you see them sort of land and take off all the time. When you look at the waterways of Canada, you can totally understand why they would have loads of seaplanes. Well, I want one. I want to land it on the Thames. All right, I'll see what the budget stretches to. See if we can get you a, a seaplane H- of H- your H- own. seaplane. <laughs> I love it. It's great. It's the best vehicle. We were talking about ice spaces and how exciting mm-hmm. that is. It, it's reminiscent. It makes me think of uh, Star Wars, the second film. When you say second, do you mean chronologically second or no. second in the order that they, they were made? Episode five. The Empire Strikes Back. So in that, uh, Luke Skywalker is trapped out in the cold, yeah. like our pilot who yeah. was uh, bailed out and uh, was... Uh, Cold in yeah. minus 80 degrees and Luke, winter. And Luke was wrapped up in a torn-torn. He was. He cut his, eventually, his space horse open yeah. and he crawled into his space <laughs> horse. Uh, and I was wondering that maybe Captain could have been a bit more imaginative. Instead of wearing his parachute, he could have hunted himself down a polar, polar bear, <laughs> killed it somehow, and got inside of that. <laughs> imagine walking back to Thule Air Base inside <laughs> a, a polar, polar bear. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, you get nearby and they shoot you. <laughs> just, just, just thinking about it. Do you think he'd be in a fit slight to fight a polar bear after falling out of the sky? We could have landed on it. <laughs> <laughs> yes, by a stroke of good fortune, I've landed and concussed this polar bear. Well, he's American. He could have given it a Coca Cola, and it would have been fine. Oh, they'd have that. been good friends. <laughs> So we were talking about ice spaces. <laughs> ice spaces, yes. Well, no, I had a question, actually. You, you were talking about the ice revealing all of the uh, weapons and chemicals that yeah. have been left behind. And that put me in mind of the nuclear bombs that were dropped and sunk into the ocean. Mm. And you said that they exploded, but in such a way that they didn't blow up like nuclear bombs, but to render them safe. And I was quite happy with that explanation last week. And then the more I thought about it, the more, the more I thought, how do you blow up a bomb without that bomb To stop it blowing from blowing up, up more. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I don't have an answer. So, Mr. Paul Dursley, do you know why they put regular explosives in a nuclear bomb to prevent it from actually going off yes okay please explain to us 
Well, you've got two different types of explosive. You have the chemical explosive and you have the nuclear explosive. Uh, the chemical explosive will destroy the detonator effectively for the nuclear explosive. Mm. And the nuclear explosive can only go off when the nuclear detonator effectively initi- initiates the cha- initiates the chain reaction. So, but, so what's that? what is that? Is that like a... I mean, presumably it's not just a spark because the explosion, in the regular explosion would... Oh, okay. Th- think of it as if if you had a match and you threw it at a piece of aluminium for example nothing had happened but if you put a sort of blowtorch that was constantly running on a piece of aluminium that piece of aluminium would itself burn i don't know whether you've ever seen burning aluminium it's quite impressive i haven't no but what effectively the what what effectively the chemical explosion does is it dis- it will destroy the blowtorch it, it will never concentrate the energy enough to set off the nuclear reaction. So the explosion of a crashing plane and explosives is still not enough to set off a nuclear bomb. Correct. It, it depends how the bomb is set up. But also the, the flip side of that is you can detonate a nuclear bomb by putting two pieces of plutonium together. As simple as that. Or just rubbing them. Yeah. That sets off a nuclear explosion. Well, it's not so, it's not so much rubbing. It's... What happens is if if there is a certain amount of mass of plutonium, say, in an area, it, it will just automatically start off the chain reaction. But of course, you'd, ne- you'd never use that in a nuclear bomb because it's, it's too dangerous. So what you have is some sort of assembly, which, well, in the early in the early bombs, it was effectively like a gun that there was like a ring of plutonium that wasn't critical. And there was a little piece of plutonium at the other end. And so chemical explosives kicked that down. And as soon as that when in the middle of the ure- of the plutonium ring, there was enough there for it to start the reaction. And, you know, people had been killed by plutonium, accidentally letting two bits of plutonium get too close together, and it irradiated them and they died. Oh, so it didn't explode, it just irradiated them? It would, yes, it, 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 in that sense it would irradiate, but it, it, in the nuclear bomb it, w- it would actually explode. A lot of the explosion is to do with the other stuff that's there and how they think, um, how the charges are shaped. So you've so, so in my head now I've got a gun a gun pointed at the bomb with a bit of material that will trigger the explosion. Yeah. And our safety explosion is blowing the gun mechanism up so that that bit of material can't go where it needs yes, to go. Yes, effectively, yeah. Okay. Then I feel my question has been answered successfully. Yeah. I shall give you a B plus for that answer, Paul. Oh, thank you. So then why is it a problem if it's at the bottom of the sea? Well, there's a hell of a lot of plutonium down there. You, you, couldn't, you couldn't detonate it. You know, rogue states or terrorist organisations could get their hands of it. And there's quite a lot of plutonium there. All you have to do is sort of squish it together, as I said, and bingo. So it's still a potential bomb and a so lot yeah, of people it's a would potential like a potential bomb. bomb. It's, 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 it's the uranium and plutonium that's, that's useful. I have a question. Where do you get plutonium from? You make it. Right, so you don't dig it up out of the ground. It's not like gold or whatever. No, it's a transuranic element, so it doesn't exist in nature. Okay. I think we've had this discussion before. Have we? It was about that some, was it Kazakhstan had more elements in it than there are, than it could possibly have. Okay, so you mix it up in a jar and you leave it for a week and it rises and it's ready for the oven. And in this case, the oven is the bomb. That's in my head how this works. <laughs> I really don't know what you're talking about. I just, you guys were all using analogies. I thought I was, I was being left out. I thought I'd join in. I feel like I'm part of the Manhattan Project right now. <laughs> Do you have a bomb in the oven? Yes.
Right, let's talk about some more pleasant things. Mm-hmm. I want to talk about appetizers. Oh yes, delicious. So that caviar. was the that was the first time I've eaten fish eggs before, let alone lump fish roe. Mm-hmm. What what is the difference then between roe? So roe I've heard used as generic for any kind of fish egg. Mm. Why are some things called caviar which are still just roe? And when does a can we call any roe caviar? Is it, uh, are they yes, just I, I think you probably can. It's it's by convention. I should think it's more than anything else. So it's not like how it's served or prepared or anything. It's just... No, it's just fish eggs. Yeah, so you just harvest the eggs from a fish, put it in a jar and sell it for a bazillion pounds. Is that why they call them goldfish? Oh. If it's if it, if it's lungfish caviar or whatever. If it's sort of, a, uh, you know, beluga caviar at £3,000 a kilogram, it's a bit different to uh, lumpfish caviar at £5 a pot. I couldn't eat a kilogram of fish roe. I think I'd be really sick. Yeah. I couldn't afford a kilogram of this by the sense of it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's probably for the best. So, Petey, you, you took home a I load did, of, I did. I nearly got through it. I had to carry out for lunch, in fact. <laughs> <laughs> I was feeling decadent. <laughs> and what about you, Paul? I sent you some. Have you tried it yet? Uh, no, I haven't. I, re- I received it today, and, and thank you very much. That was a nice surprise. Would you mind um, trying some while we're, while we're recording? Well, I've had it before. I know exactly what it tastes like. Okay, we'll stop recording now and I'll go and do it for you. Yeah, I don't have an ivory spoon, though. Oh, is that important? Aren't you supposed to eat it off the back of your hand? About the thighs of a virgin, or is that just cigars? (laughs) Okie dokie. While Bapper Burke is going to get himself some... uh, (laughs) Erudite face paw. (laughs) While he's going to get himself some caviar. Peter, can you tell me what the most expensive food you've ever eaten is? Uh, Yes, I am not a massive eater because I lack a sense of smell. Mm. My taste buds are correspondingly wilted, shall we say. (laughs) And I have a tendency to eat a lot of spicy food because it kind of breaks through. So consequently, I don't really seek out really expensive things. I have had a number of tasting menus at Michelin starred restaurants. That counts. So probably those are the most expensive things. Of like sea foam with yeah, blood orange on and stuff. An eyelid. <laughs> on an eyelid. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think you went to the wrong place. <laughs> I wonder if anyone serves it. That would be a good little appetizer. An Just eyelid? An eyelid, yeah. I mean, the scarcity value <laughs> makes it appealing, but is anyone eating eyelid these days? No, no maybe not. Okay, I so I have some caviar, and uh, what what am I supposed to am I supposed just to put it on the toast? Yeah, well, that's, well, we had sour cream and a little bit of chives and all that stuff, but if you haven't got that, it goes just fine with a bit of bread. Yam it down your throat. How, how are you finding it, Paul? Tell us, walk us through your 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 tasting sensation. Can't you hear me chewing on it? Yeah. The toast. Um, um, it's very salty and fishy. Yeah, salty and fishy. Pop that on the label. Salty, the next advert right, almost writes itself. It's salty and fishy. Yeah. Right. Well, that was fascinating. I'm still eating. Be quiet. Mm. Can you give it a grade? Well, I'd give this a C minus. If you'd have sent me some beluga, that may have been different. So is beluga tasty? I mean, to me, I can't imagine a different tiny salty fish egg 
tasting substantially better in that sort of order of magnitude. What is so good about the beluga against the lumpfish? Supposedly the beluga is a lot smoother and it has less bitterness. Supposedly. I've never had it, so I couldn't say. The lumpfish roe is, as I said in the podcast, famed for its crunch. I liked the crunch. I thought that was a selling point. If someone said this is less crunchy, I would be disappointed. Oh, that, beluga, I, I didn't really get the crunch because I was eating it on toast. Um, right, I want to talk about Paul Brink. Yes. Do you feel like um, you uh, you can in any way relate to Paul Brink in his... What, because I have the same name? No, uh, in in his addiction to the truth. Yeah, he's right. really knows right and wrong and has yeah. clarity of vision on these Justice. matters. Justice. To a certain extent, yes. You know, when should you stop? And I would say I would and most people would stop at a certain point. It is good that some people don't stop at a certain point. Perhaps on my part, I should think for most people's part, it's cowardice. You know, it's understandable to be terrified of two governments going against you, (laughs) one of which is the United States of America, you know, to be told by the ambassador to stop, stop investigating this now and to think, nah, I'm going to keep doing it. Well, yeah, it 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 is it is it's one of those things. If you were to read it in a thriller story, you'd think, "Oh my God!" Any normal person wouldn't do that. So, yeah, clearly, well, no normal person was Paul Brink. No, he yeah, wasn't. yes, I, I I think given the fact that he died after the revelations, there's no conspiracy theory there. Mm. Ryan is not convinced. He's no, I'm I'm not. I'm I'm. Why, why kill someone this. after? That, that's just revenge. Vin, yeah, vindictiveness. Vindictiveness, that's not... No, but we don't know that he wasn't looking into anything else. It's not like he was then sat back on his hands and went, done my job. It went well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> my guess is he was probably continuing the investigation in some manner. But, like, I, I, I'm in no yeah, way saying Yeah, but don't, don't forget, was. he was a jogger and, you know... Yeah, it coming. happens. It, it definitely Joggers happens. Joggers die all the time. When I was listening to the story, the little part of me was always thinking, I wonder when I'd have given up on all this and gone, okay, mm. yep, no, I'll stop. Yep, no problem, boss. Yep, you got it. <laughs> Doff yeah. cap, go back to work. Probably the minute that the radio station says, stop looking into I this. I think that would have been my, I'm like, well, okay, that's my job, I suppose. <laughs> I'll job. get through another story and it's fine. Yeah. So I have to say I admire the man. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But I, I, well, I, I can't make any judgments because because I don't know him. But and I'm not going to mention any names. But a lot of these, you know, investigators, reporters are holier than thou. I mean, I think that there is a, a a tenacity that you've got to have, and a I don't want to use the word selfish, but um, selfishness, arrogance. Yeah, when when your family is on the line in in that way. Yeah, and there is a question in the film Idealist and the Idealist that that is flagged a couple of times is why are you doing this? Are you doing this because you think the public needs to know? Do you think they really need to know or do you think they just want the potholes filled in the streets and you know, do they really need to know about something that happened for years ago? Well, of course ago? they want the potholes filled in the streets, but they also want this want this titillation and conspiracy. You know, they also want Fantasy Island or whatever it's called. The point I was saying, boys, is that, uh, you know, the government response to Paul when they pull into one side off the record is to say, 
you know, they try and turn it onto him and saying that you're saying that you're this great big voice of justice, but actually what are you doing it for? It's just your own satisfaction of needing to uncover the truth that actually you're putting a lot at risk of doing this. And it's really only just for your own selfish needs. That's the argument that they, you know, they I think raise. the gigantic counter argument to that would be the money that went to the people who got cancer. Well, they got nothing. It was 50,000 kroner is 5,000 pounds. It's pretty small. Oh, it's small. tiny. But they were on course for nothing prior to that. Well, there is also that. So that's at least a step in the right direction. Yeah. I mean, it seems like the money was less the issue. It no, was the more the truth that's, yeah, the acknowledgement that, that uh, you know, that it wasn't a loneliness. So there was an acknowledgement. It was, the, there was an, oh, we don't take any responsibility, but here's 50 grand. I don't think there's been a big a public apology by the government, no. But it's as near as damn it, isn't it? Uh, okay, I, su- I suppose it's to do with the moral compass, isn't it? You know that governments, for whatever reason, can't be moral all the time. Mm. You, you know, you have a terrorist in front of you in your prison who you know has got the details of the bomb that's going to go off. You know you can use, was it penthyl nitrate or whatever in him to get the stuff out, but it'll kill him. Do you do it? Of course you do. So would an if an investigative journalist were to do that, the vast majority of the public would say, so what? Whereas if you're saying this when it's, okay, they said this and it was blatantly a lie and then they said this to cover up the lie, that's a classic cover-up story and that's the thing that, yeah, should be exposed. You know, it's never, it's never the error, it's the lies of covering up the error that makes it worse. And, and it's also the victim as well. Somebody did their job, did everything they were told for someone who is supposed to be looking after them and have their interests, and they don't. And they lie about it. And that's a, a vastly different thing for a government to do. There is no grey area for me in that. It's just an attempt to save some money at, at heart. It was, yeah. Well, save yeah. money, save face, stay in power, don't not get kicked out at the next election. So, Paul, if I wrapped you in Baco foil and said, would you mind sweeping up that um, irradiated <laughs> snow? <laughs> well, of course would I wouldn't sign that do contract? it. <laughs> <laughs> of course, I wouldn't do it. But if there was, a, if if I was a road sweeper and someone said clean up that snow and didn't tell you that it was radioactive, of course you'd do it. Yeah, you would. Yeah. Especially if they, for some reason, said, "Oh, we'll give you double part time if you, when you're doing that." I mean, to be fair, these guys are in the army. Most of the workers are in. You were pretty much just ordered to do it. So there is that. Um, uh, yeah, the conditions that they had to clear up that mess in though. Oh, yeah. Oh, it's dark and quite chilly. It's always dark. It's <laughs> always cold. <laughs> it's all super windy, too. Yeah, n- not ideal. So I thought the secret star of the entire episode was the French explorer who happened upon the... You like that guy. I love that guy because I love the notion of this guy's walking back from the North Pole. With his Eskimo assistant. Right. Yeah. He's got a map which has nothing on it. Mm. He's trooping along. He sees this thing. And he, I just wonder what went through his head because option one, that I would have thought the first thing you would think is, I'm hopelessly lost because there's mm. no big base on my map. It wouldn't be, oh, they're probably building a super secret research base. 
No, I think if I was walking in eternal darkness across an ice scape that I wasn't expecting to see anything because, you know, the map is empty and you see lights in the distance and you get over the horizon. Well, you, you'd, th- you'd think they'd be, you're being abducted by aliens. No, I wouldn't. I'd think it was Santa's Grotto. No, he's coming from the North Pole, though. Yeah, but like, it's all close enough. He was a Santa hunter. Yeah. That's what... (laughs) (laughs) It was like, finally, I have found him. Yeah. The mythical Santa. What was he going to do with him? Capture him or... Well, it probably looked like an enormous factory. It would, yeah. So they thought, oh... This is where the toys are made. This is where he found it. Yeah. So he reaches into his pocket and he's got... His the letter that he wrote as a child, yeah, and it never got never got posted because his father was run over by that tractor when he went to the wall. So he's come to post this letter, and he's like, finally. And then he gets there, and he discovers it's just nuclear bombs and stuff. That's book. That's Booker Prize (laughs) material, Ryan. (laughs) I'll be get the Cavling Award for that one. I think I now know what happened to Rudolph's nose. Don't oh, yeah. <laughs> he was near Thule. He was. He <laughs> took close. his nose in. That was it. <laughs> Is that Thule spe- actually spelt Thule or T-H-U-L-E? Because I always used to think it was called Thule. I did as well. Well, I did too until I started researching this. It's one of those s- words I've only ever seen written down. I hadn't. And you often see it on those little um, car accessories, things on the, the roof of your car. You've got like a... Ah, uh, yes, there is a Thule roof rack. Roof rack, yeah. I don't know. That's quite amazing, though, isn't it? Like where that name originates, Thule. You know, the, the ancient Greeks had a word for lands beyond the lands we know, you know, the known lands. And, and the Romans had the same. It was beyond Britain, essentially. They didn't know what that was, but they knew there was a land there, and so they called it Thule. Well, terra incognita, isn't it? means you're really scared but nobody knows it's you (laughs) (laughs) undiscovered land or unknown land yes so paul um do you want to ask uh, us or particularly ryan uh, anything any explorations you'd like to delve into yeah yes um i do not know the answer to this question and no doubt you would have done it in your research pressure builds hopefully you always hear this story, and I don't know whether it's apocryphal, that there is more arable land in Greenland than there is in Britain. Well, I, I can understand why that would be. I mean, only 80% of the country is covered in ice. But there was always, you always hear this statistic that you, you know, Greenland ha- has more farmland or more land that could be farmed than Britain. And I always thought that's a bit of a... I'm sure that's yeah, not I right. I'm tired of hearing that thing that I'm always hearing. <laughs> No, I haven't heard that, and that, that didn't present itself during um, the, the oh, thing. You didn't do very much research, did you? But there were 3.6 Francis to a Greenland. Well, I actually looked that up. It's 3.9. Mm-hmm. So there's four Francis to a Greenland. Yeah, pretty much. So are they sure? Ah, oh, question. Are they sure Greenland is a single landmass? Well. I, I, actually, I think the answer to that is yes, they are sure. But if, if you go down to Antarctica, it's not a single landmass. If it were, if all the ice were to go, there would be a number of large islands. Basically, we might see that in our own lifetimes. <laughs> Good lord! <laughs> Possibly, this is one way to find out. But... Possibly, I, I sort of, sort of tying two of your things together. I always wonder what would happen if, say, and it would have to be the Americans, I suppose, would detonate a nuclear bomb under the ice. Would it be enough to melt the ice back to the bedrock, or would it just make a crate, an ice crater in it? You don't really see anything on the surface, do you, until after the explosion, when it all slumps down? Well, I mean, there's still one down there, so there's a possibility that we may find out (laughs) in the near future. So I think we're approaching that all-important moment of... 
the actual verdict, Paul. Are you ready to render your judgment, sir? Okay. I'm going to give you some categories and I'm going to ask you for a verdict for each of them. Category number one, newness of information, things you learned. B minus. Okay, category number two is entertainment factor. How gripped were you? C plus. Your third category is relevance. How well did he capture the topic, time and location? C plus. Yes, there weren't very many cats. I I would have expected expected something about cats yeah no cats but the subject was cats it wasn't it was curiosity curiosity killed the cat cat. so what about schrodinger's cat and curiosity what what about it well it's not dead and not alive at the same time well then if you open the box and it's dead then curiosity very much killed that cat very good point Let's move on to Dursley Factor. Uh, do you have close affinity with Greenland? Do you think that it was something that doesn't interest you at all? How did you relate to it on a personal level? Uh, I think yeah, you talk about the duplicity and the uh, uh, and the military bases. I found that very interesting. Mm-hmm. Okay, well that sounded positive. Uh, so I'll 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 give you a B minus for the Dursley factor. Very tight with the grades today. Oh, I thought he was headed to an A minus there. No. Okay, so that's all preamble for the main event. Okay, Mr. Paul Dursley, what is the verdict? C plus. C plus. Oh, I think he's done you dirty there, mate. Look, look, look yeah. Ryan. The main the main reason was. You said the word nuclear about a dozen <laughs> times in that. And for the first six times, you pronounced it wrongly. And we had this discussion on this. You did, yeah. And, and I didn't I, realise I'm sorry, it. It's, I'm sorry, it's the N-word that's done it. Yeah, yeah that was thank you. It, it was funny because we started recording, didn't we? And we I, did. the, I got about the first two in and went, oh, no. Because I knew how many realized. times it gets mentioned. <laughs> look on his face as he suddenly dawned on him that this was going to be a problem i well, then had to just exchange it for nukes at that point when when i was listening to it of course i shouted out every single time that... <laughs> I accept my punishment. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, dear. Right, well, that goes in the book. But I offer personally would like to say that I found it to be a grade A performance. Oh, thanks, Uh, man. Thoroughly entertaining. I was gripped throughout. I felt like I was in the movies for part of it. It was rather excellent. So a lot to live up to for me. I will be, of course, covering our good friends, the Bulgarians, next time. Bulgar. Delighted to tell you is going swimmingly, and I will have an excellent episode this time next week. I'm looking forward to it. Oh, is it Bulgaria when? It's 1910 to 1920. Bit of a busy period, Europe-wise. Yeah, right. Uh, and the subject is writing. So what did you have, 1910 to 1920? So slap bang in the First World War. Wow. It's a busy time, that much mm. I can tell you. <laughs> and it is extremely complicated as well, I've, I've so found So we're outside. going to get the Treaty of Sevres and all of that sort of stuff, are we? Well, I can't give it away, mate. <laughs> yeah. There are treaties, though, I'll tell you that much. Yeah. <laughs> this feels this is going to be less about pelican nose eating and more about 
people dying. It's definitely more <laughs> history-ish history, I would say. But Good. anyway, we but, shouldn't uh, over-tease oh it. Oh dear, Ryan. Even, even before even before it started, one feels the grade maybe slightly better than the C+. <laughs> yes. So my topic of period and... <laughs> Gets me a B instantly. Just, I've called this one the Dursley period time. I send him caveat. I know. He gives me a C plus. I know. And all what I've got hell? to do is describe several dry as dust treaties. <laughs> and suddenly we're in the A zone. <laughs> never mind. Never mind. Anyway, so again, Ryan, excellent episode. Thanks, man. Regardless of what this crazy judge might have to say about matters. Learned judge, I think you meant. Uh, the erudite Paul Dursley. Mm. Uh, no. Pibbles D. <laughs> Yeah. Okay, that's our show for this time. Thank you so much for listening. And if you'd like to get in touch with us about anything we've talked about, you can email us at hhepodcast at gmail.com. Uh, we'd love to hear from you, and you never know, you might feature in a future show. Yes, absolutely. Like uh, Matthew Milne, who wrote to us um, via our website, saying that he loves the podcast. He's been listening to it and has been sharing it around to everyone he knows. <laughs> uh, he also asked where our first 10 episodes of the podcast are. And it's a very good point. We took our early episodes off because the quality isn't quite up to the levels of today we were learning. So those ones are our pilot episodes, we kind of call them. Those are now on our website and they're available for you to go and stream or download from there. So um, head along to hhepodcast.com. Yeah. Thank you, Matthew Milne, for uh, your... You actually made that happen. We didn't have that archive up until you asked. Yeah, that's really true. Um, also, we should mention other changes to the website is we now have merchandise available on the site. So Ooh, if yes. you go to hhepodcast.com forward slash merch, uh, you can see T-shirts and hoodies and mugs and other bits and bobs so you can uh, pick yourself up something there get yourself a lovely verdict shirt <laughs> <laughs> it all goes to feeding Paul Dursley caviar <laughs> <laughs> uh, lampfish caviar by the way <laughs> yes indeed yeah. the more you buy the closer we get to the beluga target that's all I'm saying we'll be back with another episode soon uh, in the meantime thank you very much Ryan for an excellent service thanks Peter thank you very much Paul for excellent judgement Thank you very much for having me. Yeah, thanks, Paul. That is noted. <laughs> for future reference. <laughs> Nevertheless, that is everything. So all that remains to say is... You've been listening to... History Happened Everywhere. The Verdict. Hey, Siri, turn on the lights. <laughs> All right. House lights. <laughs> Have Red your lights turned on. <laughs> no, we're just saying it's like the house lights, like in a theatre, like get him off the stage. <laughs> Turn the house lights up. <laughs> I got it. Yes, finally. I, I didn't. I don't really get these thespian gags.